Amen. All right. Brother Brett, how has it been going so far? Do you have a number? How many of y'all have led to Christ as of maybe this morning? Wow. Seems like y'all are up more than you were this time last year you know, at, the, at the Central Florida Fair. So numbers have been good. Maybe the great weather has played a, a big part. Seems like, if I remember right, last year it was kind of rainy. Was it raining and windy early on? It seems like, I can't remember. Yeah, you, you're in so many of them. But it seems like y'all's numbers are up a little bit now versus opening weekend last year. And, uh, uh, yes. Yes. I think some of that may be that maybe there's even a decrease in people that kind of go to the fairs. I think there's so many things now that, you know, that the, the fair system, like when I was a boy in Arkansas, you couldn't wait for the county fair to come. It was one of the highlights of the year. But there was not anything else going on. There weren't very many theme parks, things like that. Then theme parks started popping up, and it seems like every region has a theme park that's year-round. And I think it cuts into it, where it's not maybe as big a deal. And I think every time you watch YouTube and you see little children flying off a roller coaster into their horrible pain death, you know, you kind of think, mm, maybe the fair is not a good option. Y'all with me on that? I always think about that stuff when I ride fair rides. I think this was put together by people who spend most of the weekend drinking. Scares me a little. You ever think about that? Nobody does. You think about that when you're riding the fair rides and you hear it creaking below you. It's kind of nerve-wracking. If you watch YouTube, you'll see all kinds of video of people in fair accidents. I'd get saved if I were them. I think you should use it. Let me tell you what I would do. I would play those on a video outside. If you were to die today, would you go to heaven? And chances are, you will die today. Remember that this ride was assembled by a drunk who spent the whole weekend getting drunk. Send it up. Send it up. Don't tell them I gave you the idea, though. I don't want to be connected to that. But, but you could show you know, some horrible, brutal things and then tell people they need to be saved. It'd work, man. It'd be great. Scare, scared straight, fair style. Scare straight. That'd be great. All right, guys, listen. Let's go to the book of Revelation before I talk myself into more trouble here. Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2. I know I'm moving at a snail's pace getting through Revelation, but man, I'm having a good time. I'm not in any hurry, and I'm just enjoying what the, what the Word presents here. And there's so many practical things that we're getting out of it as we're looking at these seven churches. We're now in the fourth church. Who can tell me which church we're studying right now? Raise your hand if you know the answer. Thyatira, Thyatira, Thyatira. We're looking at that. The word Thyatira means continual sacrifice, and that we see that name as an appropriate name. I'm going to read some things to you in a minute that was written by some, uh, I'm going to read two different commentaries that deal with this, two different authors, and it'll give you some insight. But we've been looking at it, now let's just read through it again so that we are all on the same page, and then we will go from there. If you will, look at it here in verse number, let me get to the right notes here. My page flipped over, I mean there it is here. Alrighty, we're looking at chapter 2, verse number 18, and we're going to read all the way to the end of verse 29. Are you all ready? Here we go. Look at it. Verse 18. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira, right? These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. There's six things listed there positively in verse 19. But here comes the bad in verse 20. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. There in verse 21, we see once again the grace of God God gave her space. God gave her a, a chance to repent. By the way, God gives everybody a chance to repent. There will be nobody who went to hell that God did not give the opportunity to repent, to not seek his face. He gave her a chance. He gave her the ability to get forgiveness and to get things right. And God always extends mercy before he extends judgment. And often, if you harden your neck to God during that space, you have a chance to get right. 
If you refuse to do it, then you leave God often no choice but to execute His righteous judgments. Well, we see God's mercy here. He's giving her space to repent. He's hoping she'll do right. But look at verse 22. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am He which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and unto the rest of Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which ye have already. Hold fast till I come. There's that, that, that encouragement to be steadfast, to, be, uh, to overcome, to, to not yield to changing liberalism or to false doctrine. He says, hold fast. Don't, don't, don't lose your bearing. Don't come loose. It's kind of like keep your anchor strong here. Don't, don't, don't become liberal with the times. Look at verse 26. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. And I will give him the morning star, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now, once again, who wrote this letter? Jesus. This is a letter from Jesus himself. Now, who did Jesus inspire this letter? Who was the inspired man who wrote the letter? John the Revelator. John, so we see Jesus as the author. John, basically, as the secretary. Jesus inspiring or dictating to him this letter to the churches. Jesus is going to tell him to write a letter to seven separate churches. We've looked at four of them so far. John was on the island of Patmos. He was there because he wouldn't stop preaching. Rome didn't know what to do with him. They had tried to kill him, according to legend, several times. But God intervened and spared his life, and they finally ended up exiling him to this island to get his influence away. John lived the longest of any of the apostles. It is said that he was the only one who did not die a martyr's death. He ended up dying of old age, and he did a lot of work for the cause of Christ. Revelation being the latest book that was written among the apostles, and it was, it was given to the churches, and then reserved or preserved and added to this biblical canon that we have today. And, and by the way, it's a unique... The Bible is unique that it has prophecy. There's other religions, and they have their quote-unquote holy books, but the Bible is unique that it tells the history of the world in advance. Now, if you look at the Old Testament, it gave the history of the world which has already passed. The Old Testament gives us a lot of history. And by the way, it's accurate. It's extremely, it's 100% accurate. They, it told what would be the 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 you know, dominant nations of the world, the world empires. That was given in a vision in Daniel, and yet that was extremely accurate. Right down to the T, we saw the world's history right up to this present day given in the Word of God. Now, prophets in the Bible were to prophesy, and when if they did prophesy, if they said something was going to happen, and it failed to happen, they were to be put to death. I mean, it was as simple as this. If they said, Behold, Thus saith the Lord, it will rain tomorrow at 3 o'clock. And then tomorrow at 3 o'clock, you go outside and the sun's shining, that prophet was to be put to death as a false prophet. If he said it will rain or shine, it better be right. Well, I tell you what, if, there were, if we were living in Bible days, there'd be a lot of meteorologists that would be dead, amen? A lot of me. How many of you have ever planned your day around the evening news where it said tomorrow it's going to be beautiful and sunny and you planned a picnic only to be ruined by rain? Well... That wouldn't have happened to a Bible prophet. 100% accuracy was the expectation. If you got a feeling, but you weren't sure, you'd best keep your mouth shut. You might end up swinging by a rope or hit with stones. So, you know, they had to be sure. And these were, of course, prophets that were, were conduits. God spoke through them to man, and, and they gave us the Word of God that we have today in the Old Testament. But you think about Revelation. I covered this in Sunday school this morning. Revelation in the first century describes things that we will get into soon. We'll get into some of the very horrifying and scary uh, things that are coming once we get into the rapture. Then we're going to get into the tribulation. Now, again, it's not scary for me personally. You know why? I got my insurance. My blessed assurance. Amen? 
I ask Jesus into my heart, and, and by the way, if the, if the things of the Bible scare you personally, then you need to maybe examine your salvation. Maybe look at it. Is it does it scare you the thought of going to hell? Does it scare you when people preach on the rapture that you fear you may be left behind? Maybe you ought to come and talk to me. Let's let's examine your salvation experience because it ought not scare you for you personally. But what it does scare me is that I worry about people that I know that are unsaved. It scares me for them. It's an empathetic type fear. I'm not afraid of being left here behind. I'm not afraid of going to hell. But when I read Revelation, I find it to be a little frightening because I worry about people being left. Now, if you're worried about it, let me tell you what you need to do. Give your heart to Jesus. and Accept Christ as your Savior. Put that fear to rest. Hang your faith on Jesus. You know why I think a lot of people struggle with salvation? Brother Gary, you know, I've thought about this this week. It's got on my mind. I got thinking about it. I think it's so hard for us to grasp that we can be saved just by trusting in Christ and that there's no work necessary on our part. And I think that's why we start to think, am I really saved? Am I really going? Because it's such a... You think about eternity in hell, and you think about the rapture and being left behind for the tribulation. It's such a... I mean, did I do it right? The question is, is that you, you can't do it at all. You just got to trust Jesus. You can't... There's nothing you can do but put your faith on Christ. And there's people who think, maybe I need to get saved every year. I need to get saved all the time. And I, I've talked to people regularly. I say, have you ever asked Christ into your heart? And they say, oh, I ask Him every day. Well, listen, at some point, you've got to put your faith in Jesus and trust that He is able to deliver you and keep you saved. If you are trusting in your works or your continual prayers, perpetually asking Christ to save you, I hate to tell you this, but you have not put your faith in Jesus. And, and if you believe that if you missed a day of asking Jesus to save you, that you would not be saved, you have not placed your faith in Christ. You need to place your faith in Jesus. Leave it there. Understand that He has saved you, and that when you are saved, He keeps you. You are made His child. You are adopted into the family of God, and that you now are part of a covenant. Your name is in the book of life for all eternity. And at some point, you've got to find the faith in your heart to just place it in Christ and not live in fear and not live in worry. Now, when we get into the book of Revelation, we're going to see some of these scary things. But when I think about Revelation, it has, in the first century, described the world that we now live in in reality. And so again, Revelation is a very unique thing, and we see this. Now, we get back to these seven churches. We, we, we're down to the fourth one, Thyatira. We know that it is located in modern-day Ak-Nisar, which has a population of about 20,000 there in Turkey. And uh, we know that it was a, uh, a city established by Alexander the Great. We looked at all that. We saw that Jesus made six accommodations or praises in his observations of them. We saw them listed. Works, charity, service, faith, patience, and at the very end, the sixth thing, increased works. They were doing more at the last than they did at the first. So they were growing and expanding. But then we see that he makes four critiques in his observations of them. And those were simply this. Number one, permitting Jezebel to teach. Number two, permitting her to seduce the servants of Christ to commit fornication. And then we see number three, permitting her to seduce Christians to eat things sacrificed to idols. Number four, being tolerant of her and not rebuking her they, they were tolerant of what she did when they should have rebuked her and led her to repentance. Now, we examined the, the, this one fact that this church had more good than it had bad, but God made it clear that the bad could not abide. From that, I taught you the principle that you and I must always be improving in our spirituality. There are people who believe that if they have got a lot of good traits, a few bad traits should be allowed. And we, we, we squashed that idea, didn't we not? Sometimes if you're not careful, you'll quit growing in the Lord because you'll think that you've got enough good in you that God can just accept the bad. But God told them that, that, that bad things would come upon them if they didn't get rid of these things. You can't allow any sin in your life. And we see these little flaws, these little foxes, as they can, can destroy a person's Christianity. It takes a little flaw to ruin a testimony, to destroy a marriage, to, to, to destroy a church. We have to be improving as a church. We have to be improving as a people. You need to be improving as a person. Don't allow sins in your life just because you can look in the mirror and point out some good things. 
And, and I hope you know what I'm saying on that. I, I think all of us have been guilty of that at times. But we see a little side principle come out of that. Now, I pointed out that what this church really was doing wrong here is that they, they, while doing a lot of right things, they failed to stand against some wrong things. We must stand for right, and then we must stand against evil with the same intensity and resolve. If we falter to watch and stand, evil will creep in. And we see this. This church was growing, but in their desire to grow, truth, right, and God's plan became expendable. And as a church, we cannot duplicate that sin. There are people we will not keep here at Orlando Baptist Temple because if we kept them, we would have to be tolerant of the life and sins that they want to live. And there are churches that the temptation becomes to wink at their sin or to turn your head the other way and not, not expose it or talk about it. Or as a preacher, to simply not preach on it. Listen to me. Sometimes I get on things and I preach hard on it, but I learned a lesson. Your church will fill up with the sins that you are afraid to preach against. And we know that even though people can have a lot of good qualities, we cannot be tolerant of any sin. All sin is damaging. All sin is leaven that leavens the whole lump. And we have to be careful about that. Now, as I'm going into some brand new things here, I want to explore this thing about Jezebel. Let's explore the bad that was wrought by them. In verse 20, look at it here. Revelation 2, verse 20. Notwithstanding, he says, nevertheless, even though you got all these good things, that doesn't stop the following thing that I'm about to say here. He says, I have a few things against thee. A few things against thee. Jesus said, I have some things that I'm against that you're doing. Because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, to eat things, sacrificed to idols. We see here that this lady named Jezebel was in control of this church at Thyatira. Now, this was not the same Jezebel mentioned in 1 Kings 18 and 19. Who remembers the story of the original first king or queen Jezebel? Who remembers that story? Remember that story, Michael? Brutal story. She was a horrible, horrible, horrible person. She was a wicked queen married to a wicked king, King Ahab, and they were there over Israel. And uh, she was just the wicked wife of Ahab. By the way, there are certain names that you'll never see solid Christian families name their kids. You won't see Christians name their kids Judas. Amen? Right? Let's establish this. Judas is not a good Christian kid name. Amen? Say amen. So I don't have to preach on this. Amen? Maybe name a dog that you hate and wished, you know, would, would get hit by a car. Name him Judas, but don't name your child Judas. Amen? Don't name your kids Judas. Not the name that people choose. Christian. I've never met a Christian family with a son named Judas because he betrayed Jesus. And every time you see his name mentioned in the Bible, what is said next to his name? Judas, he who betrayed Jesus. Uh, maybe there's people named Judas, but I've never met a Christian family. Out of all the Bible names in the world, my dad has a beef with his mom over this. My, my, my grandma chose a Bible name for my dad for his middle name. She chose the name Cornelius. So my dad's name is Glenn Cornelius Riggs. And my dad has always said, out of all the great Bible names in the Bible, she chose Cornelius. Well, listen, there's a lot of great Bible names. There's Daniel and Joshua and Isaac and, and Isaiah. And there's all these different men that are great men. David and, 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 and Peter, James, John, all these guys. But Judas, not a name. But by the same token, I've never met a good Christian family named their daughter Jezebel. Now, I've heard of entertainers that were wicked and wild and, and probably demon-possessed, and they've chosen the name Jezebel, but I've never seen a Christian family name their daughter Jezebel, and for good reason. She was wicked, horrible person, and it's not, an, it's not ever a compliment for a Christian young lady to be referred to as a Jezebel. If somebody looks at you and says, you little Jezebel, you've not been complimented. Amen? Let's establish this. You guys got me? Somebody say amen real loud, good and loud. All right. Well, there's a woman in this Bible named Jezebel here in Revelation chapter 2. It's not a name associated with anything good. Every time we see it mentioned in the Bible, in the, the two places here in Revelation and back in 1 Kings. Uh, by the way, who knows how Jezebel died? Tell me that there's not irony. Brother Howard, how did Jezebel die? She became dog food. 
And, the, and by the way, the prophet said she would. And by the way, why was God so angry with Jezebel? What did she do that really got him upset? Anybody remember? Remember your Bible? Remember your Old Testament Sunday school? What did she do? You remember Elijah was running from her. She was about to have him. What did she do, Miss Jackie? She was killing the prophets. She hated the prophets. She hated the work of God. She hated the workers of God. By the way, I'm going to tell you something. If we're not careful and we don't become active in polls, we're going to end up with Jezebels running our country. And there's people out there that hate the work of God and they hate the workers of God. And anytime evil rules, the work of God suffers. In the last 10 years, we've seen preachers subpoenaed for preaching against homosexuality. We've seen churches investigated in their 501c3 status, yanked and pulled. We've seen it even here. I had to fight the government because they were demanding that I give them the list of every contributor to this church. They wanted to know the tithers to this church. Business, they are not allowed to know. And I want you to know as your pastor, I stood against it, refused to give it to them, and I still haven't given it to them. They tried to hold up our 501c3. And I'm going to tell you something. These investigations that you hear about where they're saying that under the Obama administration they went after churches and conservative groups, it is true. We're an example of it. It took us three years under Obama's administration to get approved for our 501c3. Now, maybe it's a coincidence that they tagged churches and religious groups, but it should have never happened. Now, I'm going to tell you something. If we don't let people that fear God, love God, and think this Bible is the Word of God, we will end up under a regime that Israel ran under. By the way, Israel at one time was... Would you all agree that it was at one time a holy nation? They were the very people of God, and now their king and queen were killing the very prophets of God. How does a person like that rise to power? I'll tell you how, because good people do nothing. Good people want jingle in their pocket and not glory in their heart. Amen? And by the way, when a nation goes wicked, it's a joy to them to see the prophets persecuted. Houston, Texas, the mayor of Houston, Texas, was the very first openly gay mayor in America. It's not a coincidence that she subpoenaed five pastors in her town because she said they had committed hate crimes because they had preached against sodomy. She demanded copies of their sermons. Only thing that saved her from jailing those five men of God was the attorney general of the state of Texas reminded her that she was breaking their constitutional right to free speech. But I'm going to tell you something. It's never easy when evil first starts trying, but they're not the kind that knock once and go away. They just keep coming. They just keep coming. That's why I'm encouraging you to go to the polls. Listen, this Second Amendment right is being challenged right now. And it's been strong. It's been challenged before. But I promise you, the liberals will not go away on this. They'll keep coming. And they'll keep... And the same velocity that they fought to be able to murder their unborn children, they'll keep coming back. And, and by the way, America let that happen. And, and, and the majority of America was morally against it. Problem is, leaders got in office and, got in, and judges got in place that lacked moral judgment. Somebody say amen. And we're crazy if we don't think we can't end up with a Jezebel and an Ahab ruling America if we don't wake up as Christians. You realize how many people are godless and atheists that are now members of Senate and Congress? Do you realize that right now the first transvestite Candidate has announced his candidate, or her candidate. Oh, no, it's a her, but started out a him. But it is running for Congress and is leading in polls and expected to win. Now, I wonder how, when we end up with half our Congress as gay or transvestites, how's it going to go for us preachers when we're considered hate crime victims, or that we're considered hate crime perpetuators when we preach that the Bible says that sodomy is against the Word of God? You say, well, that'll never happen. Don't be surprised if you see your pastor one day carted out in handcuffs because I preached the Word of God. We better wake up, amen? Israel went to sleep, and evil rose to the top. And then they literally saw their prophets being slaughtered like cattle. But you know what? There's a God in heaven 
Jezebel may have thought that she was in control, but God was always in control. The prophet told her that one day there'd be nothing left of you but the, your skull and the palms of your hands. We see that she was knocked off the wall. By the way, evil politician, God can knock you off your pedestal. Amen? She went falling off the wall and splatted all over the ground. We see even Ahab as he was fleeing. and By chance, an arrow hit him, killed him. The Bible says the dogs lapped up the blood that was in the chariot. Not a very lofty end for somebody who thought so highly of himself. You know what I'm saying? And then we see here where Jezebel, the, the dogs came and literally devoured her body. I think God's got maybe a little irony to him. Maybe there's a little, little irony, sense of humor going on there. You were so high and lofty, now you're just a pile in the middle of a field. You understand what I'm trying to say? You understand? You, might even get, my, you get my drift there without me being crude? Your dog food, your fly food, you're nothing. You killed one of my chosen, and you're a dead man walking. Hey, and you know what? I believe in hell to this very moment, she screams in torment. Well, this Jezebel in verse number 20 is not the same woman mentioned in 1 Kings. There are two possibilities as to who she is. Number one, it was a woman actually named Jezebel that is causing all this trouble in this church. Or, possibility number two, it is a woman that Jesus nicknames Jezebel as a reference to her character and action. She may be a typology of Jezebel. Maybe that she had a different name, but Jesus refers to her as being a Jezebel. Could be that Jesus looks at her and calls her this as a reference to who she reminds him of. Wouldn't you hate to remind Jesus of Jezebel? Wouldn't that be a horrible characteristic? Anybody out there tonight? Now, we see here that she was a self-proclaimed and not God-called minister. Look, notice what it says there. Which calleth herself a prophetess. By the way, anybody that's a false prophet would be in the same category. There's a lot of people that are not God-called, they're not God-empowered, and they're not doing the work of God. They're not in the will of God. This woman was, calls herself a prophetess, but she was never in the work of God genuinely. You need to be careful who you listen to. There's a lot of people on Christian radio that call themselves preachers. There's a lot of people on Christian TV that call themselves preachers. There's a lot of people in the Christian bookstores that write books and call themselves ministers. But they're teaching false doctrine. And anybody that teaches a false message is not a genuine minister of God. They're not working in the genuine spirit of God. We need to be careful. I've seen many Christians led astray by false prophets and false prophetesses. Now, we see here that she was maybe a type. Now, we know that she was a type of Jezebel. I don't want to read you some notes here. First of all, I want to read you from Clarence Larkin, the great theologian who wrote Dispensational Truth. Listen to what he writes here, if I can get to this page quickly here. He writes a little commentary on the church at Thyatira, and I think it's important that we see what the symbolism of her is. Alrighty. He writes this, quote, There is no question that whether Jezebel was a real person or not, she typified a system and that system was the papal church, or what we would call the Roman Catholic Church. When the papal church introduced images and pictures into its churches for the people to bow down to, it became idolatrous. And when it set up its claim that the teachings of the church is superior to the word of God, it assumed the role of prophetess. A careful study of the papal system from A.D. 606 to the Reformation, which was in A.D. 1520 with its institution of the sacrifice of the Mass. 
and other pagan rites reveals in it the sway of Jezebelism. It was also a period of Jezebelistic persecution, as seen in the wars of the Crusades and the rise of the Inquisition. A careful comparison of this message with the parable of the leaven will reveal the wonderful correspondence between the two. The Jezebel of the church of Thyatira being the woman of the parable who inserted the leaven of false doctrine into the meal of the gospel. This period extended from A.D. 606 to the Reformation, A.D. 1520. Now that's what Larkin says of her, that she is a type of what became the Roman Catholic Church. Now let's read what Dr. Bill Grady wrote in his book, Given by Inspiration. And uh, let's see what he said in here that I, I found interesting. It's just easier for me to read it than try to explain it to you. And let me get here. And it's on page number 10. Are y'all still awake out there? He says this, The message in the name of this church is a dead giveaway. The name of Thyatira means continual sacrifice. It is a reference to either the blasphemous mass of Romanism or to the suffering of God's people at the hand of Rome itself. The letter to Thyatira provides much information about the Catholic Church in the Dark Ages when Constantine deserted the eternal city for his new capital at Constantinople, which, of course, he named after himself. He left three vital things behind for the up-and-coming bishop of Rome. The first was a serious power vacuum. The second was his personal title of Pontifex Maximus, or chief priest of the pagan state religion, which is inscribed on the mitre worn by every pope in history. The emperor's third gift was that seat. You do recall where Satan's seat is. Now that was in the last church. We saw the starting of the Catholic Church. All popes would henceforth rule ex cathedra, i.e. from the chair of Peter, though we know that the seat came from Constantinople. The letter begins by placing the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God. The next verse is possibly a glancing reference to the corporal works of mercy provided through the area monastery in the best of the medieval traditions. Now he goes on, and I'll, I won't read all of this, but we see here where he makes a correlation that this Jezebel is a symbolic typology of what will become the religion we know today as the Roman Catholic Church, and that it came up in history during the period of time that Thyatira exists as the, the, if you look at it as the church age, the seven churches of the church age, Thyatira is placed at the time that Constantinople would have become powerful and that the Catholic Church would have been growing. And you see these, these connections here. Now, we see here that she was suffered. The word says they suffered her. Notice this there, look at it. Um, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel. She was suffered. This denotes that people knew she was bad, but they put up with her. Do y'all catch that? The church suffered her. They knew that she was bad. They knew that she was wrong. They knew that what was being done here was wrong. Whether it was an actual person or it's a symbolic happening described as a Jezebel, if God is describing as these two men suggest, that this is a Catholic church that is, that is leading people into idolatry, which it did. Amen? It did lead people into idolatry. They suffered it. In other words, they knew this was against the Bible, but they allowed it to happen. You know, they put up with her, maybe out of fear or intimidation, or because maybe she was popular, or they just didn't want to turn over the apple cart, so to speak. They, sometimes this principle of, of peace at any cost is not a good principle. You know, a lot of times when people compromise, I, you know, when people start compromising, usually nothing good comes out of that. Somebody usually comes out good while somebody else comes out burned. I heard about a man walking through the woods. He was on a bear hunt. He was wanting to kill a bear so that he could make a bear skin jacket out of it. He'd always wanted a nice bear skin jacket to get through the winter. So he went on a bear hunt. As he was going through the woods, he came around a corner and there was a giant grizzly bear standing there. Of course, the bear was on him before he knew it. And the hunter said, whoa, 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 let's stop for a minute. He said, man, listen, maybe we can make a compromise here. Maybe we can come to an agreement. 
And the bear said, okay, I'm open for talks. And the man said, you know, all I want is just a bear skin jacket. And the bear said, well, listen, all I want is a full stomach. Maybe we can come to an agreement. So after a few minutes of talking, the bear left with a full stomach. And the man, in return, was given a bearskin jacket. How many of you think the bear got the better end of that compromise? When we start compromising as a church, we're the hunter in the story. The devil gets a full stomach. He gets what he wants. Compromise in Christianity has never led to strength. It has always benefited the enemies of Christ. Liberalism has been the constant result of us suffering false doctrine, of us suffering troublemakers in a church. You can suffer one troublemaker and just suffer her, but then before you know it, you've lost half your church. You'd have been better off to have stood against the one person, lost the one family, than to lose 50% of your church. But that's what happens when we suffer people who come in that are trouble in the church of God. Now, we see here that they were probably intimidated about her. And I, I want to point this out. Now listen, if, if you're going to get mad at me, this is the time to get mad. Ladies, I'm going to warn you, but I'm going to cover something here. I've got to get a little shot of courage here. Just a second. You guys wonder why I carry these. It's got 10%, or, no, it's 2% alcohol in it. <laughs> a little shot of courage, I don't know. My mouth gets dry, and I've got to put something on it when I get nervous and scared, you know. Remember that scene in Jaws where he couldn't spit his... He, remember he was going to go kill the shark and he couldn't spit? He's like, I got no spit. You know when you get scared, you don't have any spit. So. Now I'm good. In biblical history, feminism has never ended well. Did you know the Bible condemns women preachers? Now, I'm in a culture that just literally goes ballistic over this, and I meet women preachers and women pastors and women prophets and women apostles every day in Pine Hills, and I'm not fighting with them. But you may wonder why Miss Riggs isn't listed as Pastor Riggs. A lot of our school parents refer, they'll say, is Pastor Riggs here? And I say, yeah, and they go, no, no, I mean your wife. Now listen, I, I'm not trying to be politically correct. I don't have any interest in being politically correct, and if this overturns the apple cart, then so be it. But it is not God's plan. And any woman that says she's a preacher is doing what Jez she calls herself a preacher. It is not God's plan. Now, let's just think about it in the Bible when women took control. Eve took control of the garden. That didn't work out so well, did it? Not a, by the way, it's not, it wasn't an accident that the devil found Eve when she was alone and seduced her first. The Bible makes it clear that Adam was to be the man of the home and that the man is to be the head of the home. Anything without a head is dead. Anything with two heads is a freak of nature. It's not the way God creates things normally. It's abnormal. It's an abnormality. There's not supposed to be two heads of a home. There's a man who God has made responsible for the home and his wife is his partner. She is not his subject. She is not to be trodden underfoot and treated like a slave. She is his partner, but he is the one that God is going to expect to stand up and take care of his home. And by the way, God says a man that will not take care of his home, he is worse than an infidel, some Satan-worshiping infidel. God takes it serious that you're to be the man of your home. Men, you are not right if you're not taking care of your home. You need to be the one out wet working and sweating and providing. And you need to be the one that's the spiritual leader. You need to be the one who's saying, family, let's go to church. Not, hey, I'll see you when you get home. I'm going to watch NASCAR. We're living in a world today that we're in a mess because men have stopped being the leaders in their homes. And you know what? Everybody, when I get on this stuff, people start wanting to throw culture at me. I don't care what your culture is. If you abandon your wife and kids and you have kids all over the country, that is not Christ. That is not godly. You need to quit following a counter-Christ culture and get where Christ wants you to be. Jesus would not counsel you to go impregnate women and leave them to themselves. That is not Christ-like. We need to get back to raising our kids, men. We need to get back to being there to watch our sons play basketball. 
We need to get there to teach our sons how to properly handle a firearm. We need to get back to being men that are there loving the mother of our children and being a faithful husband. We're living in an area where I would say 80% of the homes of this area are fatherless. Fatherless homes. That's not the will of God. You say, well, how do you know? Well, if it was the will of God, women, you could get pregnant without a dad. You being a smart aleck? No, I'm giving you a scientific fact. If God didn't plan for a man and a woman to bear children and raise them together, he would not require them to be together to create a child. I'm not blaming the women because us men have become weaklings. Strayed when we should have stayed. You say, well, that's our culture. Well, your culture's wrong. And at some point, you need to be a Christian and, and abandon that culture. My culture is German-Irish. Don't you think there's some things in my culture that I'd like to erase? If you go to Ireland, most Irish men are drunks. But that's not a Christ culture. I don't even want to get into the German culture. Sometimes we need to get out of all this racial politics junk and start being Christians. Listen, somebody say amen loud. I've been here 16 years. I've earned the right to say some of these things. I'm, so, I'm tired of watching young boys who've never had a dad teach them how to change a tire. I'm tired of watching boys who'd rather go to the dress store with their mom than Bass Pro because they've never had a dad take them out hunting or fishing. Tired of watching boys play basketball games and never see a dad in the stands cheering them on. I'm tired of watching kids that we pour our heart and our soul into, literally being surrogate parents to them just to watch them become drug addicts, alcoholics, and non-church dropouts because their mom and dad were never around and didn't bring them to church. Doesn't work. We have parents drop their kids off here all the time. Go home, come in and get them. You know what I've learned about this in 16 years of doing this right here? It doesn't work. They'll come to church till they're about 16 or 17. Then they start joining mom and dad. Mom and dad don't go to church. And I didn't have a dad. So they'll end up having babies with some guy who convinces them he loves them for a night. And then the circle just keeps happening. We've poured our heart and soul into kids at this church. And what failures we have attained are the failures of the homes that we have worked with. Fatherless homes, godless homes, non-spiritual homes. Listen, I've made a purpose when God gave me children, I was going to raise my children to walk in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And that I wasn't going to send them to church, I was going to bring them to church. And that I was going to be a pew with them. And that they weren't going to learn how to pray at the hands of other people, Daddy was going to teach them how to pray. We're all talking about why our society is so bad. The Bible says, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Don't you think the devil has been interested in destroying the foundation of the home? By the way, it was the first foundation God ever established. Before he established the church, he established the home with Adam and Eve. It's God that ordained marriage. Well, marriage doesn't work today. No, it doesn't work in the devil's plan. You're right. It doesn't work when you don't have loyalty, morality, character, stickability, stability. It doesn't work when all you're wanting is a few nights of fun with the opposite sex. It doesn't work when it's that way. But it does work when you do it God's way. All this, my baby's daddy's coming by to get the kids today. Whatever happened to my husband's coming by to get the kids? We're in a mess. I'm not mad at anybody in particular, but I'm mad at society for okaying all this. Now, some of you maybe have ended up, split up, or divorced. I'm not mad at you. I, I, I hate that for you. You guys know that. But what I'm saying is sometimes we make plans and we deal with the wickedness of other people and it puts us in a bad situation. But I don't think anybody in this room would stand up and say it's the best way. 
And it's becoming the normal way. It's becoming the way America sees it as being normal. Young men in this room, you want to go have a family? Let me give you this, what the Bible says. Get a wife first. And you, if you don't want a wife and you don't want responsibilities, then don't have a family. Live alone and be single. And fight the burn. But if you want to give in to the burn, then let every man have his own wife. And then you don't need to just go get some woman. You need to fall in love with a woman. You need to marry somebody in God's will and God's plan. Somebody that you love and you actually care about. Some of you guys need to find a woman that you hate and just go buy her a house. Because that's where it's going to end up at some point. Hey, this feminism stop of the world today, this men sitting down while women pastor churches, men sitting down while women run the country. I'm not, listen, chauvinism and misogyny is not right either, and it's, it's the other way out of balance. You've got feminism over here out of balance, and you've got misogyny and chauvinism over here out of balance. Somewhere in the middle is God's plan. There's a balance to this. I do not treat my wife like she is my servant, but she is not my master either. I am going to answer to God for my home. My wife makes a lot of decisions. How many of you know Miss Christie? I mean, how many of you really know her? Do you feel that this is a battered woman sitting here? A woman that doesn't get her way? Who doesn't get what she wants and deserves and isn't treated with some respect and dignity? Listen, I'm horrified of this woman sometimes. Hey Amen, I'm just kidding you, but listen. I watched my father, my mother has been very ill for 25 to 30 years. My dad has basically had to resolve now to being a caregiver. My dad's been married to my mom 50 years this year. I watch how he has to take care of her, and the things that he has to do now to keep her going. And I'm sure that he didn't envision his golden years being this way. My dad turned 69 this week. We had a party for him at my house. We had a beautiful party and all the family came over. My dad's very healthy, very strong. A lot of things that I know personally that my dad wanted to do in these years of his life, in the 60s and his 50s, things that he wanted to do, things that he would have done. He had to just totally cancel those things. He's had to make sure that he's right there. That's what love will do. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man would put down his life for his friend. If you're not willing to do that for a woman, don't marry her. Don't marry her. And this, 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 this thing about hating women, that is not godly. I do not teach you men to treat your wife badly. But I also don't want you to have your wife running your home. That's not godly either. By the way, every man I see beating himself on the chest, well, bless God, I run my home. He's usually the worst one about being henpecked. My wife makes a lot of decisions. And I'm going to be honest with you, there's times I let her make decisions because she's smarter than me in that area. She's better than me in that area. And I can acknowledge it. Now, I have confidence that I know there's areas that are my areas. My wife gets to make certain decisions, like what we name our children, where we live, and what we eat, and... and I get to make decisions like what kind of dog food we buy. And... Amen. Now, there are decisions that are my territory. There are times that my wife asked me to do something and I didn't want to do it. I said, I'm not going to do it. A few minutes later, as I'm getting it done, I uh, you know, realized she was just right in that area. It wasn't that she's the boss. It wasn't that she's over me. I just realized somewhere in that the conversation, she convinced me that she was right. And that how it works sometimes. And that's a, that's, that's a healthy marriage. You don't have to be right all the time, men, to be in control of your home. And you don't have to be in control of everything to be in control of your home. But this thing about chauvinism, this idea that men need to sit down and let women run the world. And listen, that may sound great in Washington, but that's not God's plan. Now, here's the bottom line. You just need to decide which one's doing better. God running the universe or Washington running America. 
Which one do you think's had a better plan? Which one do you think has more wisdom? Man messes everything up. God's will is to make leadership in the home. God has said there needs to be a leader in the home. Now, some of you women, you're single moms, you're doing the best you can. Listen, you know my heart goes out to you, and you know I love you. Please don't misrepresent what I'm saying here tonight. I hate it that some man put you in this position, and I wish that the man that left you would have been a godly man. I wish he'd have done right. I wish he'd have done right. When he put a ring on your finger, he said, I'll love you till death do we part, and he failed. He should have stayed, not strayed. And sometimes you're doing the best you can to run your home, and you know my heart goes out to you, but I'm talking about men as a general. We've, we've created this mess because often we've sat down and we have suffered Jezebel to rule. A home, a church, or a nation without leadership is out of order. And we need male leadership to be in God's plan. God expected men to run and men to be the leaders of their home and the country. God has a plan and a purpose for all things that He has created. And when done His way, success ensues. Done our way, failure is the only destiny. When men don't or won't lead, women will take and lead. This is never a good place long term. Liberalism, emotionalism, compromise soon sets in when we get out of God's plan. Now, listen, if you study contemporary churches, this is where the church is at today. They're the biggest churches in the world. You study it, I've studied it, and I've come to this conclusion. You study it on your own. But this is what I noticed about contemporary churches. The women are the strongest leaders in the churches. They're often the pastors, they're often the assistant pastors, they're often the main spiritual leaders. And by the way, it's not about ability. Women have wonderful abilities. Not against women contributing and being involved and being leaders, but, but I'm saying in their churches, women are the strongest leaders. I notice that the men are often very passive followers. The services then become built on things that women seek and are into, things that are important to women, things like emotionalism. How many of you realize that women are more emotional than most men? I mean, I'm not saying it's always that way. I've seen Brother Xavier running from snakes, and he can get pretty emotional. Remember that time we were soul winning and a snake smothered up? You took off running screaming? Yes. Pretty emotional moment. Us men can be emotional, but how many of you men have ever had an argument with your wife and you were trying to be rational and she was being emotional? Come on, men! Hey, listen. Women are created by God and you are emotional creatures and you balance us because often, for instance, with child rearing, it is so good to have a woman with emotion because us men could tend to just be nuts and bolts. Your kid's sitting there crying, Get up! Go to bed. That's what we would have. That's how our, my dad would come in crying, cut. You know, mother would take us and wash that cut with soap and water and put some antibacterial stuff on it and a Band-Aid. She'd kiss it. Mama's kiss fixes everything. Am I right? My dad's answer was, go rub some dirt in it leave me alone. <laughs> Mama would make me a sandwich for lunch, Tara. She knew the way I liked it. She knows I love mayonnaise. She'd take the ham and she'd roll it into rolls and place it on the bread, you know, neatly, and she'd put a little slice of tomato and she'd get up and make me a lunch, put it in my lunch, put a little note, Mommy loves you, and a little napkin. She'd make sure I had snacks, you know, little Debbies, the kind I liked too. She knew I loved star crunches and I loved them oatmeal cream pies. She'd make sure I had one of those in there. And different things. Now, when Mom was sick, sometimes Dad made lunch. My dad knew how to make this. My dad loves bologna. I hate bologna. Early on, I was told that it was nothing more than ground cow tongue. I don't want no part of it. I don't know if that's true or not, but I just don't really care to find out. Dad would take the... And not only would he give me... I, this is a true story. My dad made my lunch when I was in first grade one time. My mom was sick. Dad brought me in a little lunch sack. First of all, there was no little Debbie. There was no note. There was no bag of chips. There was a sandwich, if you could call it that. Miss Angelica, it was a piece of white bread, and then he had the heel from the bread. Nobody eats the heel. How many of you are like me? You skip over the first two or three pieces of bread to get the good stuff. Dad got the heel. So it had the heel on one side, one slice of bologna laid over it. 
And then to make matters worse, he took a thing of ketchup and squirted it right in the middle. Then he stuck the other piece of bread on it and smushed it down. It looked like somebody had shot with a gun and it was bleeding a hole, a bullet hole is what it looked like. It was like, boom, I'm looking at it, it looked like a target. And I'm looking through the bag, I'm emptying it out. That's all that was in there. Dad would take us boys hunting. We'd come back, mother would say, well, did y'all get anything to eat? Dad would say, ah, no, I gave him a granola bar. And she's like, Glenn, them poor babies are starving. We'd look at her. We'd get our tear in our eye. We're starving to death. We'd go all day long, and he wouldn't get us nothing. Just wouldn't think about it. Now, it's a good thing women are emotional, and that they stop. And I could walk in the house when I was a teenager. I could just walk in the house, walk in, and mother would say, Stop! She'd say, come here. She'd say, what's the matter with you? What? What do you mean, what's the matter with me? Son, sit down. We need to talk. Glenn, something's wrong with Rusty. I'm like, what do you mean, Mom? I just walked in the house. I could tell when you walked in, something's bothering you. You need to talk to me. She'd make me talk. Dad would look at her mom like, what are you talking about? You know? But the truth of it is, she was right. There was something bothering me. Now, Dad would have never noticed it in a million years. I could get stuff by Dad. I could get by stuff. I could get stuff by Sherlock Holmes had nothing on my mother. She could smell a lie a million miles away. She could smell a scheme. She was in tune to us kids, our heart. She had it in her hand. You know what I'm talking about? You got children. You know each of your children differently, don't you? That's the emotionalism of the home. That's where God created a team. Now, I'm going to tell you what happens at homes often where there's not a male to kind of be rational, and there's just a female to be emotional. There's no balance. And you know what happens in churches when feminism takes over? They become wrapped around emotion and not doctrine. Feel-good sermons. Feel-good singing. And we're seeing this as a problem today in the church movement. Now, I know y'all don't want to hear about all this. It's not popular. And some of you are going to feel bad now when you turn on the radio and listen to your favorite female preacher. Some of y'all enjoyed hearing Joyce Myers. Now you're going to feel a little weird about it. Brother Gary. One of the largest churches in our town is pastored by a lady. And I would like to say she's a moral lady, but she is not. She's wrecked more homes than a wrecking ball. She's the senior pastor of one of the largest churches in our town. Horrible testimony, which is out there for the whole world to see. But people love her church because it emotionally feels good. When she preaches, you just feel good. You just feel so good. She just kind of melts on you. She's pretty. She looks like a pop star. I'm going to tell you something. You study these churches. Services will be built on emotionalism, feelings, feel good. Everything's got to be joyful and fun. You need to be covering domestic topics, not doctrine, because women aren't interested in that in most cases. They're going to be covering these, 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 these subjects of fun and domestic topics. More like domestic psychiatry, not, not biblical doctrine. You're going to see blurred lines of gender in those churches coming out of it. You're going to see praise teams with eight long-haired men singing and 20 short-haired women standing around them. Somebody say amen. Blurred lines of gender. You'll see a church built around a lot of sensuality, feel-good, dance-style music. You'll wonder if you're in a dance club or in a house of God. You're like, what in the world? This isn't... Everything's about feeling good. And it will possess a very feminism-type spirit. A lot of coddling, pacifying, excuse-making, avoiding conflict, compromise, what we call mothering. Pastors, these women mother their members. Oh, it's okay. It's okay if you're not living right. Listen, y'all are looking at me like a calf looking at a new gate, but here's the reality. Come run a school for 16 years and deal with these moms who coddle their kids. Your son was caught stealing! Oh, he didn't mean to. Son, you didn't really mean to steal that. It fell in your bag accidentally, didn't it? Yes, yeah, that's... Come get mommy a hug. 
Meanwhile, dad's like, boy, what did you do? Get in the car. Get in the car. Now, you guys don't believe that that stuff happens, but it does. How many of you have made real mad tonight? Come on, let's be honest. All the little boys are like, oh, man. It was the part about the spanking that got me, didn't it? How many of you don't like maybe this, but you know what I'm saying to be accurate? Hey, sometimes truths are not convenient. Sometimes it's inconvenient. This church is in big trouble with God because they suffered Jezebel to lead them. And she led them into some horrible things. I have never seen the feminist movement come out good in the Bible. I, I threw out Eve. What about Jezebel, the original one? She was running Israel. That didn't end out well. Hey, what about Herodias, who ordered the head of John the Baptist after having her own daughter seduce her husband? Sexually. You, you know, can you all read between the lines there? You know what happened, right? That's a great mother. That's what I want you to do, honey. I want you to go. And he, by the way, she was his mistress. John the Baptist made her mad because she was married to Herod's brother. And now there, and he said, this is not lawful for a man to have his brother's wife. Am I right, Brother Gary? He ticked her off, boy. John the Baptist ticked her off. How dare that man get up and preach on my sin? I'll tell you what I want you to do, honey. I want you to go dance for Herod. Then he'll make you a promise. Whatever you want, he'll give it to you. Then I want you to ask for John the Baptist's head on a silver platter. And that's how the cousin of Christ, who Jesus said, there was never a man born greater of a woman than him, died. Because a man had a woman running the show. Herodias, that's feminism for you. You say, preacher, you're a chauvinist. Well, let me tell you what you are. You're stupid. Notice I wasn't looking at you when I said that. I was walking toward the back door. I'm going to tell you something. I was raised by a strong woman. Carolyn Riggs is one of the strongest women you'll ever meet. My mother-in-law, Jody Watkins, one of the strongest women you'll ever meet in your life. My grandma Riggs could outfarm any farmer in Garland County. She led that family. She was a good man, but a good woman, but she understood her husband was the head of the home. Christy Riggs is a strong woman, capable, a leader, better preacher than I am. My wife understands that when it comes to this house, there's a point that she needs to allow me to lead. And I understand that I need her help. And there's a balance to it. She is my partner. Now that's God's plan. And when it comes to the church, God wants men to lead. God wants men to lead. Brother Greg, we need men to lead this church. I'm thankful for the ladies that help and contribute. And I can't imagine this church without the ladies of this church. They do so much good. But it's a shame when a church hits the point where the women have got to do everything because the men do nothing. We don't want to become a church that's like this church, suffering Jezebel to be their leader. Nothing good's going to come out of this. Now, there's more to this story. We'll get into it next week. How many of you are done and you ready for me to be done preaching? Mikey, you're at least honest. Thank you. Let's bow for a word of prayer then. Listen, man, I, I, I hate getting on this stuff too because I think sometimes it can divide us, but you know what? If we divide over right doctrine, then that's what we need to divide over. I'm not willing to divide over a lot of things, but when it comes to doctrine, I'll divide over that. If, if, if you believe that God's will is for a man to be a wimp and a woman to be the leader of the universe, then I don't know what Bible you're reading, but I've never seen that come out good. I think we need to do it God's way. And I'm not against you ladies. I'm just trying to do it God's way. My sister is a wonderful lady. Great ladies teacher. I've often joked that she was the best preacher in the family. She doesn't pastor a church because she believes the Bible says that women ought not to usurp a man's authority. It's not about wisdom. She has more wisdom than most men I know. She has abilities that are amazing. But she doesn't believe it's God's will that she pastor a church. And it's not God's will. You say, is that across the board? Yep, it's across the board. It, there's not any women that are exempted from that command in the Word of God. There are women who call themselves these things, but it's not God's will. We need to get back to God's way. Men in this church, be leaders. And I beg you, be good husbands. Raise your children. 
Be there for your wife. Be there for your kids. Times are hard. Stay. Don't stray. Don't run away when you get bored or you get mad or you get disappointed. Pressures come. You dig in. God gave you to be the man of that home. Be the man of that home. Ladies in this room that are single moms, listen, you're going to have to play both roles and it's not your fault, but do the best you can. Sometimes you need to supplement with some men to be able to help with your sons and teach them some things that they need to learn. If they don't learn it, they're going to be in a world of hurt down the road. If little boys don't learn how to be men, they're going to be hurting down the road. If you have to find men in this church to take your son fishing, then do it. If you need a man in this church to teach your son gun safety, then do it. Supplement the best you can. But we need men to be involved with these kids. Your son needs a, a, a manly figure. Because that was God's plan. It's God's plan. By the way, it's good to have a man in the life of a daughter to teach her how men ought to be with her. And to protect her and to guard her. To keep some worthless boy from sneaking in and taking her away. When you look at girls that have had good fathers, they usually end up moving forward and they want a man often like their father. You see a girl raised by a worthless father. Sadly, a lot of them end up marrying boys like their father. I don't know why it works that way. And there are exceptions, but statistically speaking, men, there's so much riding on you. Your children's happiness and future and stability depends on how you are now a lot of times. What becomes normal to them is sometimes abnormal in God's eyes. Let's do it God's way. Is there anyone that can say, I'm not saved, but I want to be tonight? I want to be saved. Would you pray for me? I want to be saved. Anybody? Looks like everybody here professes Jesus to be their Savior. Dear Lord, I pray that you'll hear the prayers of your children. Lord, I've covered some difficult topics, things that I'm not afraid to cover, but don't really prefer to cover. God, I pray if there's anybody in this room that I have offended, that they'll pray about the matter, and that they'll love me anyway, and continue to hear me preach. They don't see it in the balance that I see it. It's okay. We can love each other. God, I tried my best to just be faithful to what I see the Word of God teaching. I know that it's not politically correct. It's not culturally in this area correct. But Lord, I believe that the culture we need to most study is the Christian culture, the culture of Christ. Let us forsake all others and hold ourselves unto it. I pray that our people will rise to this in their, their, their maturity. My goal is never to offend. But I did want to teach because it was there in the, in the book. It was right there in the text. Help us, Lord, as we grow in these matters. We ask this in Jesus' name. Hey, the altar is right.